Do you schedule and host events in the Jewish community? Conferences, webinars, local events? Please consider adding your events to Jcast Network's newest project, the Jewish Communal Events Calendar. Don't schedule events, but know someone who does? Invite them to add their events. If we all work together, we can create another wonderful resource for the Jewish community. Visit our calendar and post your events at jcastnetwork.org slash jcpc. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit mikenopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. All right. In the in the interest of time, I want to just kind of uh, no, no, you're good. Um, I, I just want to uh, uh, fl- uh, go through a, a couple of more points that that he makes, um, just to make sure that we get it. Although we really kind of have a sense of of, of what he's going for. So, uh, if we just sort of uh, go through, right, religion is a response to the mystery. In other words, religion is created um, in in uh, in God in search of man. He says that uh, um, uh, uh, religion. It, Religion is an attempt to answer man's ultimate questions, right? So we have ultimate questions. We have questions about the, the meaning of life and the experience of the world, right? God in the world, whatever. And religion are, are, are human attempts to place answers to those questions, right? Um, which, by the way, I think you would argue that uh, um, I mean, he makes a, a God in search of man is a philosophy of Judaism, and so in in a, in, in large sense, he he I think Judaism has a compelling uh, series of answers to those questions. But I don't think that he believed uh, Judaism um, was the only compelling series of answers to the, those questions. And in a lot of senses, the questions are universal, and in some ways, the answers are universal, just garbed in particular language. Um, so religion is a response to the mystery. Um, ultimate concern is an act of worship. Uh, the sense of wonder, awe, and mystery does not give us a knowledge of God. It only leads to a plane where the question about God com- becomes an inescapable concern. To a situation in which we discover that we can neither place our anxiety in the safe deposit of opinions, nor delegate to others the urgent task of ultra- answering the ultimate question. Such ultimate concern is an act of worship, an act of acknowledging in the most intense manner the supremacy of the issue. It is not an act of choice, something that we can forever ignore. It is the manifestation of a fundamental fact of human existence, the fact of worship. Every one of us is bound to have an ultimate object of worship, yet he is free to choose the object of his worship. He cannot live without it. It may be either a fictitious or a real object, God or an idol. In other words, um, uh, uh, the 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 uh, that we pursue understanding more than understanding relation to God is uh, is itself the the primary religious move, right? So um, so so caring about God, caring about what God says, what God is, is the essence of religion. Um, so what does he say to the person who believes there is no God? So um, I, I guess he would say a couple of things to that person. The first is um, that, uh, that, that he would say that there's, there's no way to know whether or not there's a God. He actually, uh, um, actually, he, here, let, let's read this next uh, paragraph from 85. I think that, that kind of answers the question. Understanding God is not attained by calling into session all arguments for and against him in order to debate whether he is a reality or a figment of the mind. God cannot be sensed as a second thought, as an explanation of the origin of the universe. He is either the first and the last or just another concept. Right? So what he would say, I think, to, to, to a person who doesn't believe in God um, is, uh, uh, I, I'm not sure what he would say to them. I would say that, that he, he, he believes that that is um, uh, uh, not the right, not a useful orientation to the world, right? That, that, that not believing that there's a God is the wrong question. The question is, um, uh, how would you live if you assumed that there was a God versus how would you live if you assumed that there was not? 
I would say just like they're living now. Okay, and, and, and Heschel, I mean, I think that Heschel probably wouldn't be particularly judgmental of them, but I can be. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, the person would respond yeah. just like I'm living now. If I don't believe in a God, he says, how would you live if you assume there was no God? The way they've been right, and so, and so, so that then I think it goes back to what Heschel says before, right? Every one of us is bound to have an, uh, an, an ultimate object of worship. So I would ask to that person, sorry, that's on page 84, uh, in the ultimate concern is an act of worship. It's the one, two, th- third paragraph. Every one of us is bound to have an ultimate object of worship, yet he is free to choose the object of his worship. Right? So I think that the question to that person is, then what do you serve? Right? The person might say, I serve myself. Okay. That's fine and that's fair, except for I can point out any number of ways in which there are uh, tremendous moral problems with, with saying that pri- primarily you serve yourself. Right? Um, so that's what that's what he means. I mean, he says, you know, listen, you can you can make compelling arguments against God. He would say that that's ultimately a distraction from the issue. The the, the issue is, what are you serving, right? Um, how are you oriented to the world? Um, and he would argue that there's one. I think uh, um, I don't know if you would use the terminology good, um, but a. I think you might use the terminology worthy, like there's, there's a worthy way of being, of, of encountering the world and, and, and a less than worthy way. Um, I don't want to put words in his mouth though, but um, yeah. Um, all right, so speculation does not precede faith, right? Faith is not about, uh, um, is not about entertaining arg- arguments. Faith is about, um, is about putting your trust in what can't be proven. Um, the antecedents of faith are the premise of wonder and the premise of praise. Worship of God precedes affirmation of his realness. We praise before we prove. We respond before we question. Proofs for the existence of God may add strength to our belief. They do not generate it. Human existence implies the realness of God. There is a certainty without knowledge in the depth of our being that accounts for our asking the ultimate question, a preconceptual certainty that lies beyond all formulation or verbalization. If you, if you remember Soloveitchik, he, I think, says something similar. There's something fundamental about being human that draws us to search beyond ourselves. And, this, and, and that dimension of, of humanity is itself... Um, Salvagic never says that it's itself proof of God's existence, um, but Salvagic never asks the question about whether or not one should prove that God exists. Right? Heschel, I think, is dealing with that question more fully. He says the fact that we yearn for God proves that there is a God. Right? The fact that we yearn for companionship proves that there is an other. Right? That 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 my wife is not just a figment of my imagination. Right? Um, not just my wife, but the idea of my wife. Um, okay, let's go a little bit further into Heschel just so we have a little bit of time for Kaplan. Um, so uh, I, I mentioned a few times uh, this, this idea of, of God in search of man, uh, which was his uh, seminal work. Um, and uh, let's look at 87, okay, where he really gets into this. So most theories of bottom of 87, most theories of religion start out with defining the religious situation as man's search for God and maintain the axiom that God is silent, hidden, and unconcerned with man's search for him. Actually, up to now, that actually may be how we would have understood what Heschel was saying, right? That, that God is hiding in the mystery, right? And we're, uh, and, and we're, we're searching for God. Now, in adopting that axiom, the answer is given before the question is asked. To biblical thinking, the definition is incomplete and the axiom false. The Bible speaks not only of man's search for God, but also of God's search for man. Thou dost hunt me like a lion, exclaimed Job. From the very first, thou didst single man out and consider him worthy to stand in thy presence. This is the mysterious paradox of biblical faith. God is pursuing man. It is as if God were unwilling to be alone and he had chosen man to serve him. Our seeking him is not only man's but also his concern and must not be considered an exclusively human affair. His will is involved in our yearnings. All of human history as described in the Bible may be summarized in God's fra- in one phrase. 
God is in search of man. Um, let's see. Um, Briefly, um, what he would say about God, uh, God seeking man out, right? God uh, uh, is that God uh, makes God's presence known within reality, right? So remember that there's there's an unknown dimension of the known, uh, and we can only know the known with. Uh, uh, with recognizing the unknown element to it, right? So, uh, uh, so the fact that there is unknown within the known, the fact that there is, uh, um, uh, there, there, there are amazing things in the world, right? Is God's attempt to communicate to us, to speak to us, um, and so He says, only those. This is page ninety. Only those who have gone through days on which words were of no avail on which the most brilliant theories jarred the ear like mere slang. Only those who have experienced ultimate not knowing, the voicelessness of a soul struck by wonder, total muteness, are able to enter the meaning of God, a meaning greater than the mind. There is a loneliness in us that hears. When the soul parts from the company of the ego and its retinue of petty conceits, when we cease to exploit all things but instead pray the world's cry, the world's sigh, our loneliness may hear the living grace beyond all power. Uh, I think, by the way, that, that might be part of his answer to, uh, uh, to the atheist as well, right? If so if you, if you ask the question, you know, then what do you serve, recognizing that everybody serves something, and a person says, I serve myself, what he would say is... Um, uh, that uh, that there, there's there's not only a spiritual but a moral problem of the ego, right? Uh, that the ego, uh, uh, if we say we serve ourselves, our own interests, right? Then the the ego uh, disables us from hearing the world's cry, the world's sigh, which also includes the cry of people in need. Um, the essence of Jewish religious thinking does not lie in entertaining a concept of God, but in the ability to articulate a memory of moments of illumination by his presence. Israel is not a people of definers, but a people of witnesses. Ye are my witnesses. Reminders of what has been disclosed to us are hanging over our souls like stars, remote and of mind-surpassing grandeur. They shine through dark and dangerous ages, and the reflection can be seen in the lives of those who guard the path of conscience and conscience and memory in the wilderness of careless living. Since those perennial reminders have moved into our minds, wonder has never left us. Heedfully, we stare through the telescope of ancient rites. This is his answer about the question of ritual. Heedfully, we stare through the telescope of ancient rites, lest we lose the perpetual brightness beckoning to our souls. Right? We... we we observe transmitted ritual because within the ritual is contained a testimony to an encounter with God. Our mind has not kindled the flame, has not produced these principles. Still, our thoughts glow with their light, right? They, they, they create within us the capacity to, uh, to re-encounter God the way our ancestors did when they developed those rites. Um, Rationalize the fact that all of a sudden it stopped. I mean, there's no. Yeah. I mean, all so hash, communication uh, went on, and now all of a sudden, right. at a time we probably are in greater need, we don't have it. So I think what Heschel would say is that it didn't stop. We perceive, we 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 think that it stopped, but that's actually a failure of our um, our imagination and religious uh, intuition. 
right? Uh, so Heschel believed in, in continual prophecy. Heschel did not believe that prophecy ended a particular time. That was the interest of his, his academic interest in, in studying the prophets. He believed that God perpetually speaks to human beings, right? Is perpetually in search of human beings. It's just that uh, uh, he, he might argue that there were people in the ancient world that, um, that were more prepared than many people in our time to like, you know, pursue God for a living, you know, so uh, uh, that, that, um, that uh, um, over time we became disinterested in responding to the call, right? So Maimonides, I think there's actually, uh, this is a really, I don't know why I'm thinking so much of Maimonides tonight, but maybe there's rich, fertile soil to, to compare Heschel and Maimonides. Maimonides has this, um, in his book of philosophy, The Guide of the Perplexed, he has this um, uh, uh, metaphor of like a, of, of a castle, right? And, uh, and different people, you know, in their proximity to the castle are related to people in their sort of understanding and awareness. God is in the middle of the castle, right? And there are people who are like uh, closer or further away from uh, pure awareness and understanding of God. Maimonides believed that philosophy was the way into that, so that's probably where he and Heschel would differ. Um, but uh, but but I think that what Maimonides would say and what Heschel would say are something similar, which is that um, that one can train oneself to be able to receive prophecy and through receive pro through receiving pro prophecy be able to crystallize that uh, communication, crystallize that experience in. In, in, in laws and in practices and in deeds. Um, so I think Heschel will say that there's nothing inherently special about the authors of the Torah. And this is where I, 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 I'm not positive where Heschel stood on the whole divine authorship question. I think he believed in human authorship that was divinely inspired, right? Uh, but I think that- Someone in, in modern times claim that they've gotten the word of God, they will be severely, and many have, they would be severely looked down upon. Right. So, uh, and Heschel would say that in their time, the prophets were too. Right. <laughs> uh, and that's not to say that every crazy person on the street who claims to have spoken with God or have God spoken with him is to be believed. Um, uh, uh, and I think maybe this next piece might might hit on on how to determine uh, one from the other. But but I think what he'd say, he, he said about the prophets, the ancient prophets, that they were they were an octave too high. Uh, that, uh, you know, that, that they were, you know, if, if you sat on the bus next to Jeremiah, um, you probably think he was crazy too, right? So, um, so, uh, so I think that, uh, that Heschel would say, you know, listen, there's obviously a danger in, um, in, you know, in, in every Tom, Dick and Harry who claims to have spoken to God, you actually believing them. On the other hand, there's a danger the other side too, that you never believe anybody who claims to have uh, received a, a message from God. Um, so here's a, uh, 92. Uh, where is the presence? Where is the glory of God to be found? It is found in the world, in the Bible, and in a sacred deed. Do only the heavens declare the glory of God? It is deeply significant that Psalm 19 begins, the heavens declare the glory of God, and concludes with the pian to the Torah and to the mitzvot. The world, the word, as well as the sacred deed are full of his glory. God is more immediately found in the Bible as well as in acts of kindness and worship than in mountains and forests. It is more meaningful for us to believe in the imminence of God in deeds than in the imminence of God in nature. Indeed, the concern of Judaism is primarily not to how to find the presence of God in the world of things, but how to let, let, him enter in, uh, let him enter the ways in which we deal with things, how to be with him in time, not only in space. This is why the mitzvah is a supreme source of religious insight and experience. The way to God is a way of God, and the mitzvah is a way of God, a way where the self-evidence of the holy is disclosed. We have few words, but we know how to live in deeds that express God. God is one and his glory is one, and oneness means wholeness and divisibility. His glory is not partly here and partly there. It is all here and all there. 
But here and now, in this world, the glory is concealed. It becomes revealed in a sacred deed, in a sacred moment, in a sacrificial deed. No one is lonely when doing a mitzvah, for a mitzvah is where God and man meet. We do not meet him in the way in which we meet things of space. To meet him means to come upon an inner certainty of his realness, upon an awareness of his will. Such meeting, such presence we experience in deeds. And then, and then just what, you know, every moment is his subtle arrival and man's task is to be present. And I think that he would say that, that a life of discipline through the mitzvot is a life of, of being present for God. Um, having the antenna up. Is there a possibility of adding another session? Is there, uh, there's always a possibility. Yeah, sure, we can do another session. Yeah. That's true. But you know, when it says here uh, it's more meaningful for us to believe in the eminence of God in deeds than in the eminence of God in nature, some people believe that, you know, the God is part of nature. Well, he, he would, he would, I think Heschel would say that, that God is certainly part of nature, but what he would say is that, um, that the, the, the way to fully experience God is not only through appreciating the divinity within nature, but about bringing God into the present moment, right? And we bring God into the present moment through deeds, through actions, um, right? Not only through ritual mitzvot, right? Through, he, was, he talks about uh, through, um, what is the word he uses? Uh, through... Yeah, but there was a... Um, ah, Acts of kindness, right? So not only not only through worship and not only through mitzvot, uh, but also through acts of kindness. Right? So so morality is a dimension of it, right? We we um, experience we bring God into the world and experience God in the world through um, through acts of kindness and acts of justice. Yeah. Which is, uh, becoming like God is right more important than studying God through nature's right. My take on this. <clears throat> And he, there, there's this famous quote from Heschel when he was marching in Selma and someone asked him, um, you know, what, what, what business does a rabbi have, you know, marching in Selma? And he says, um, uh, in Selma, I felt as though my feet were praying. Hmm. Right? And right, so that's, I think, right there, right? That the imminence of God in deeds. Right? That we, that we uh, ha- are with God and have God in the world through how we live in the world and how we work in the world. Um, all right, let's uh, let's evaluate Heschel, and then we'll um, then we'll look a little bit at Kaplan. Um, so, how would you rate Heschel in terms of authenticity? No, in terms of like how authentic he is with the Jewish tradition, like it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So good. That's one way of determining authenticity is, you know, uh, and we'll maybe we'll see this with with Kaplan uh, is that uh, you, you know, um, you uphold the system. Right. Uh, So I think Heschel upholds the system. Right. He 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 doesn't come to his philosophical conclusion says, you know, therefore, don't follow the meets vote. Right. Um, Right. So good. All right. Coherence. How how logical is he? How how does he contradict himself? Does he? I think he's very logical. I think it's just sometimes uh, his, interpreting his words can be a little difficult. It's pretty mm-hmm. wordy. Yeah, he's wordy. Pretty, he's very wordy. Um, but I think he does answer certain inherent questions that are raised when you think about how we practice our lives. Right. And I think, in a sense, that's very appropriate. Something you you know, I mean, I agree. A big word is not an excuse, takes away from the if if you create a barrier between what you're saying and people understanding it, I don't think that's the greatest way to approach an issue. But some of the things that you just expressed, particularly this last paragraph, seem seem very viable. I think he's more in line with our conservative traditions and beliefs, Mm -hmm. whatever. What about contemporaneity? How how uh, 
How useful is Heschel for life today? He can be very useful if, you, yeah. if you're on his track, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Basically timeless if you get into it. I mean, I have to right. better than, you know, but, you know, he speaks to me better than maybe the other two. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I also think that, you know, he didn't know any of this then, but I think that, you know, Heschel is uh is is very coherent with um with with insights from like say quantum physics and uh um you know there's a sort of uh um mysticism of science nowadays uh that that I think actually dovetails very nicely with uh with with Heschel. Um and he also the the other thing I like about Heschel is that um he's a mystic but not necessarily a particularist. Right, so that uh, that that one can plausibly uh, be uh, uh, a member of any religious tradition uh, and and approach the world and live life the way Heschel says one ought to approach the world and live life, which I think is very good for today. Well, considering the fact that so much bad right in the world and its history has been created by people practically in the name of religion basically saying that their religion gives them the right and the commitment to do bad things. Right, right. And I think that Heschel uh, has a really good response to that. I think Heschel would say that that is religion as idolatry, right? Uh, that, that's, that's a religion presuming to be, uh, uh, I, I don't know what the, argue, what the opposite of ineffable is, effable, right? <laughs> that's, really, that's religion presuming to be effable. Um, what about communal acceptance? How, how acceptable is uh, Heschel, do you think, to, to the Jewish community? Depends what came through it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think, listen, I think that, it, that I was very encouraged. I actually had no idea that people in the Orthodox world read or studied Heschel. I think Heschel is, is probably one of the most uh, uh, broadly accepted and influential theologians um, of, of our time. So I think that, uh, that Heschel still has a lot of communal uh, sway. Um, okay. How do you feel about him? Personally, uh, I'm, I'm very influenced by Heschel. Um, I'm also very influenced by Kaplan, and you'll see that they're very uh, different ends of the spectrum, and so um, it's a little bit schizophrenic. Uh, but uh, and we, we don't have a lot of time for Kaplan, so let me entertain uh, this suggestion of uh, of a of a fourth session. Let me think of when we would do that. Uh, the two weeks from today is Memorial Day. Um, I have a I have a meeting that night. Um, Next Monday, so the part of the problem is that why I did these every other week is I have a a, a, a standing meeting every other Monday night. Um, is any other night? Yeah, does it have to be Monday? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's tough to find a night that's not a Monday night. Um, yikes. Um, Is that Shavuot? No, it's it's Motzei Shavuot, right? Um, what's that? Yeah, no, I don't want to do that. Um, all right, let, let me let me let me try to do in like three minutes, uh, Kaplan. Okay. okay. Uh, all right, and then and then we can try to figure out another time uh, beyond that. But I but we brought Cap. What's that? Like Hillel. Like Hillel on one foot. I'm gonna give you Kaplan. Okay. So uh, so first uh, a little biography. Kaplan uh, was born in the late 19th century in uh, in in Eastern Europe. Uh, came to America with, you know, uh, mass uh, Eastern European uh, Jewish migration, um, uh, became, uh, was so brought up in traditional uh, Jewish world and then uh, uh, founded uh, an important stream of modern orthodoxy as he was a young young man uh, studying philosophy. So he uh, founded um, something called Young Israel. Um, 
and then uh, was brought to the Jewish Theological Seminary, the Conservative Seminary, to, to teach, and there he became sort of a pillar of uh, conservative movement thought. His seminal work was a book called uh, Judaism as a Civilization, in which he argued that Judaism um, was not a religion and was not a value system uh, that God gave us on Mount Sinai, but an evolving religious civilization uh, so that uh, uh, is, is uh, human-formed uh, and human-developed over the course of time, which is actually very much in keeping with the uh, uh, ideological origins of conservative Judaism as positive historical Judaism, that it's a historical phenomenon that, that transitioned over time. And over time, uh, Kaplan got more and more uh, uh, liberal in his in his thinking uh, um, and uh, eventually um, uh, rejected the notion of a of, of a of a personal God what he calls in this essay God is the power that makes for salvation uh, otherworldly God. Right, so a supernatural God. Um, what so God as the power that makes for salvation means that there's not a uh, a, a, a a personal identifiable uh, entity called God. Uh, God is a force within the universe. Right, God is just something we we call a force within the universe. Right, so um, and he he says that. Uh, that insights from from science and history and sociology and psychology uh, make it such that we we understand in his view that uh, that that belief in a personal God and otherworldly God is a sort of psychological projection and very influenced by Freud and that sort of thing uh, uh, that um, uh, that that we that we constructed this God idea uh, to uh, to be you know helpful to human beings and human civilizations but it's really a a, a psychological construct or a, or you know a, a sociological construct and not a reality right the the reality is that there's a force for good and for uh, wholeness within existence um, but it's not it's not personal right so you can't like pray to that force but right in the prayer books it appears to be that way in what reconstructionist prayer books Oh no! Right. So what he what he so that's why he developed Reconstructionist Judaism. Uh, and if you look at Reconstructionist prayer books, it it does not uh, um, identify God, or it tries to steer away from identifying God in those personal terms. Right. So. Um, uh, uh, so in our prayer book, it certainly does. What he says is that's a vestige of of you know sort of ancient fantasy, um, where. You're saying in our prayer books. You know, God is more personal. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Blessed are you, God, right? And we want you, God, to do stuff for us, right? And what praising God continuously. Right. right. And what and what Kaplan would say about that is that that, that is wishful thinking. So, uh, how did, so his prayer book is different from our prayer book and is in that sense? Yeah, I mean I have to go back and look at what the original Reconstructionist prayer book looks like, but Reconstructionist movement has prayer books today and and, and it's more or less in line with, with, with his thinking. And it tries to steer away from uh, um, a, a, a personalizing God in that way. Um, so... Um, we cannot today think of salvation in the same otherworldly terms as did our fathers. I'm on page 73 in here. But in the terms in which we can think of it, it remains an indispensable element of our religion. Fortunately, the very forces that have destroyed the illusion by which the medieval mind saved itself from despair and weariness of life gave, gives us a substitute for our lost paradise. Right? In other words, God as a personal thing is an illusion that was created by the ancients and the medievals to uh, help compensate for the precariousness of their situation and their lack of knowledge about science and things like that. Um, the salvation that modern man seeks in this world, like that which his father sought in the world, uh, in the world to come, has both a personal and social significance. In its personal aspect, it represents the faith and the possibility of achieving an integrated personality. All those natural impulses, appetites, and desires which so often are in conflict with one another must be harmonized. In other words, um, so there, so uh, um, uh, uh, God is uh, uh, what we call that drive within us to become more whole people, right? And it's also what we call that drive within society to create more just, kind, equal societies, right? God is, in some senses, like synonymous with our conscience, 
right, with our morality. You know, he would say that, that um, you know, that's, that's essentially what Freud said too, it's just that Freud said that we um, project that conscious, we project that superego uh, into a great superego that, you know, that rules the world. So, how does he feel about faith? What he would, so what he, what he feels about faith is, it depends on what you have faith in, right? Uh, if, you have, if you have faith in a supernatural entity called God that you know, created the universe and, uh, and, 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 uh, and that hears our prayers and that hears our prayers, whatever, if you have faith in that, then you're delusional. That's what Kaplan would say. Uh, if you have faith in, um, in the human capacity for self-transcendence and for healing, if you have faith in society's capacity to uh, create justice, right, then that's worthy faith, Kaplan would say. When he says we cannot think of, Already, I don't like who is he referring to by we? Is it the Jewish <laughs> people? Is it all people? Uh, I, think he's, I think he's identifying um, uh, the, the, the challenge of... Um, I think he's talking about modern people, right? The rise of uh, of, of secularism and and, uh, and and atheism in the you know uh, early and mid twentieth century. Right. So in uh, creation, he talks about uh, um, a little bit later. So page seventy five, he says. Um, uh, we are so accustomed to think of God as the creator of the world that it's hard for us to associate the idea of Godhood with any being not conceived as endowed with superlative powers of creation. Only the moral aspect of that belief is nowadays of vital import. In other words, he, he, says, he would say, I don't know how the world was created beyond uh, the Big Bang, right? but he doesn't believe that there is a conscious, willful uh, force in the universe that... that, that, that uh, uh, originated creation and organized creation into being, right? Creation just is, um, and uh, and there is a uh, there 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 is power within that creation uh, for good, and he identifies that power as God, but he he acknowledges that that's a metaphor, right? Um, so there's it, there's not really God; it's just what we would call God, but what we would call God. Is is a natural force within within the world, right, and not some supernatural presence. Um, but then, but, then ha but there's no what? there's no allusion to like Judaism. <laughs> uh, right. So 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 that's uh, again, if we go to the uh, evaluations, right, in terms of authenticity. Um, I think that Kaplan would probably not score very high in terms of authenticity. Um, uh, what he would say is that uh, that's why Reconstructionist Judaism is called Reconstructionist Judaism. We're reconstructing Judaism uh, in our time from its supernatural origins. So does it have rituals? Does, does he yeah. Have yeah. I, I, what, what, um, uh, so the, the premise of Reconstructionist Judaism is that the, the past gets a vote but not a veto. Right, so um, so in some ways it's not so dissimilar from conservative Judaism in that the 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 um, the orientation is to conserve tradition. There's no unless they have a good reason to reject traditional modes of practice, uh, they continue to do the traditional forms of practice. And if they can reinterpret it, all the better, right? But um, uh, uh, but the, they're willing. This is how they're similar to Reform Judaism, willing to jettison a practice if it no longer serves or if it can't be divorced from, you know, its supernatural overtones or something like that. He has no alignment at all with Jews for Jesus kind of thing. No, no. no I there's there's a paragraph here, I guess it's on 75. Religion must no longer portray the hopes of men for the abolition of poverty, oppression, and right. war on this earth. By regarding these evils as mere trials and tribulations or chastisements of love for which we um, shall be, be compensated. compensated in another world. It must cease waiting for an act of miraculous intervention to remove these evils in the end of days. Right. It must encourage men with faith and hope to apply human intelligence and goodwill to the removal of these evils and the achievement of social, social salvation of mankind. 
Interesting. Right. So, um, so th there's a couple of points to be made here. The first is uh, that you know, in terms of especially if we're relating ra rating this in terms of authenticity, there's a there's a way in which uh, um, uh, Judaism, traditional Judaism, and traditional religious belief uh, in in the uh, primacy of the supernatural leads to a rejection of the physical. Right, so the physical is unimportant. Right, uh, um, you know monasticism and uh, and and things like that. Uh, so he's he's saying uh, point blank that um, that that uh, insofar as you know supernatural religion distracts us from the world, we need to reject it categorically. But he also, I think, says something that is very authentically Jewish. Um, and, and, and I think the, the way he puts it is, is beautiful. Um, bottom of 78. He doesn't believe in the Messiah, does he? Um, sorry, he doesn't believe in the Messiah. Does he? Um, uh, no, he, well, he believes, I think he would believe in the Messianic era, the possibility of like uh, tikkun olam in a redeemed world. I'm not sure if he believes in a figure called the Messiah. Um, not in maybe the traditional way. But here's, I think, where, where he is authentic, right? So according to the version, bottom 78, according to the version which the Jewish civilization at its best had always given to man's place in the world, life is conceived not as the working out of a doom, but as the fulfillment of a blessing. The process of that fulfillment is continually interrupted by all manner of evil. Evil is an interference. It is not fate. The die is cast, says the Occidental man, and Jewish religion retorts, but the final issue is with God. For God is the creator, and that which seems impossible today, he may bring to birth tomorrow. Once we learn to regard evil as the chance invasion of sheer purposelessness, and learn to identify all meaningful factors in the world with good and blessing, we become adjusted to whatever befalls us, not in the spirit of desperate resignation, but of hopeful waiting. Thus, for example, the Jews have been taught to regard their national history in the light of the blessing which God had bestowed upon Abraham. Though every page of that history records unparalleled suffering and tragedy, the Jews as a people never for one moment surrendered their faith in the blessing. The suffering and the tragedy have always been viewed merely as interruptions which have postponed the fulfillment of the blessing. They were never thought of as the fulfillment of some irrevocable doom. So, so going to the point that you were making before, uh, what, what he's saying is, and this is where I think he, he is authentic with the tradition, that even though Judaism has traditionally believed in a supernatural God, it has always um, uh, placed uh, uh, priority on the, on the importance of, the, of, of action in the here and now, right? That there's not, uh, that, uh, um, that, uh, that, that God's, uh, creation of the world isn't necessarily control of the world and control of the fate of the world is in human hands, right? Um, and so in, in that regard, he actually, I think, strongly agrees with the classical Jewish tradition. And I think he also points out um, a, 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 a classical logical problem with the tradition, which is that we, we talked about this with Samson Raphael Hirsch, right? If, um, if God is uh, created the world, is in, uh, in control of that creation, then in what way is human action at all relevant, right? And what, uh, and what uh, Kaplan says is you can't have both of those things at the same time. You can't have human action and divine control. Uh, and so what we're going to say is that divine control was always an illusion. Right. Was, was always an illusion, right? It's so just something we... Says, For God is the creator. Right, so he's, he's reflecting the traditional view that God is the creator, but what he says about that uh, a couple pages before is that to say that God is creator is a metaphor for a moral message, right? No, well, you could make that argument, but what he's saying is that only the moral aspect of that belief, the belief in God as creator, only the moral aspect of that belief is nowadays of vital import. The moral implication of the traditional teaching that God created the world is that creativity or the continuous emergence of aspects of life not prepared for or determined by the past constitutes the most divine phase of reality. In other words, saying that God is the creator is a, is a metaphor for the creative possibility of life. Right, and to say that uh, to say that we believe in God or we follow God um, is that we are trying to tap into and uh, harness the creative possibility inherent in life and live out uh, that promise. 
So this last sentence, there's an urgent need for a renewal of that faith in life, which Jewish religion proclaimed when it identified God with creation. Yeah. You know, how does this go with some of the other things? <clears throat> right. So the so uh, so what he's saying is the the the. Um, when Judaism proclaimed that God was the creator, what it meant was that um, uh, uh, was that God um, uh, uh, infused creation with possibility, right? And we need to reconnect with that um, because we live in a world in which it it uh, per, with the advent with the advent excuse me, with the advance of, of science, study of history, there is a sense in the Western world uh, of fatalism, right? That we're, that, you know, that, that you're doomed to repeat history and that, uh, and, that, and that we live in a mechanical world, right? So he would say that Judaism, the insight of Judaism in saying that God is the creator is that, um, is that the, uh, uh, the, the world is not set, Fate is, you know, history is not set. The future is not set, right? And so what Judaism can offer the world today is the moral message of that idea that God is the creator, not necessarily the literal sense of it, right? Does that answer your question? Okay. You know, we didn't really go into it that much, but I just feel like what he's expounding leaves me hungry right so what, what uh, so uh, maybe we can uh find some uh time uh, another time to go deeper into Kaplan. what i'll say is I, I think that there are ways in which he is authentic to the jewish tradition there are ways in which he is um making a very deliberate and conscious break from the jewish tradition right? and he knew that and acknowledged that and wanted that um uh I would say, however, that uh, in terms of coherence, personally, I find Kaplan to be perhaps more coherent than any other. Right? He's he's the only philosopher that sort of starts at first premise and kind of works backward, right, uh, or works forward from it. Um, I, I think that uh, Heschel's not really all that concerned with logical coherence, right? Kaplan is. Um, now, I, I love Heschel in part because he's not so concerned with logical coherence, but I also love Ka Kaplan because um, he really wants to be airtight in his logic. Um, I think Kaplan's contemporaneity is very strong, right? I think Kaplan really deals head on with, um, with, with the modern world in a way that uh, none of the other thinkers do, although they do in, some, they do in their own way. But, but Kaplan says, like, I'm not going to explain away uh, uh, psychology and sociology or history, right? Uh, I think in some, in their own way, Heschel and Soloveitchik do kind of explain those things away. They don't really treat them as real entities. Um, and communal acceptance, uh, Kaplan's a sort of mixed bag. There's certainly parts of the Jewish community um, that very strongly identify with, with Kaplan's theology. Um, everyone from Jewish secularists to, uh, to Reconstructionists, even a lot of conservative Jews. Uh, you know, I think that uh, to to my mind, the the um, the god of the god of pure logic comports much more closely with Kaplan's god than with Heschel's god, um, uh, uh, just because there's no way of really understanding or proving Heschel's god. Heschel's god is totally ethereal, right? The god of experience, to me, is much more aligned with with Heschel's god. The god, uh, I I find it very hard to pray to Kaplan's god, right? Um, now, Kaplan would say, that's my problem, not God's problem, right? Um, but uh, that, is, that doesn't impede the logic of it. That's just my problem, right? Is it, so don't pray, you would say, or whatever, right? Uh, uh, Heschel's God enables me to actually um, uh, uh, pray with a relatable entity. So um, it, um, I, I, depending on my mood and the moment, uh, I sometimes gravitate more to uh, Kaplan and sometimes more to, to Heschel. So communal acceptance for Kaplan is kind of a mixed bag. Um, in his time, the conservative movement basically disowned him for uh, essays like this. Um, he's become much more, um, uh, much more in vogue in the conservative movement nowadays. Um, but, did, but he, did he come up with you know, what he writes about on his own, or did he have a foundation of other thinkers or other theologians or writers that came before him that he pulled from? Um, 
Yeah, I think that he was very influenced by uh, um, uh, Alfred North Whitehead, uh, who was uh, who developed a, a form of a philosophy called process philosophy. Um, I think yeah. he was influenced by by Whitehead. I mean, listen, you know, all, all philosophy is a footnote on Plato, um, and uh, and I think there's something very Kantian about uh, Immanuel Kant. Uh, uh, influence in, in what Kaplan writes. Um, he had a lot of influences. Uh, um, uh, Martin Buber was very influential to him. Buber, but I was going to say, but they didn't seem to have a, a Judaism foundation that he was pulling from. He was, you know, more maybe some other philosophical. Right. So I think that um, I, what. what it's an interesting point. I mean, I think that uh, I would say that that Kaplan, perhaps more than the others, starts in philosophy and and uh, and ends in Judaism rather than starting in Judaism and ending in philosophy. Um, but I I have to think a little bit more on that um, on that statement. What, what does he do with twenty four hours of Yom Kippur? What do you mean? Well, I mean, who are you who are you appealing to? Right, so I think what he would say is that you're appealing to the godliness within yourself. Right, the, you're you're appealing to the power within you uh, that makes for your own salvation. Um, really which, to be fair, is is not so dissimilar. Like if you remember, it, 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 I'm sure you don't, but I, I the sermon I gave on Colney Dre this past year, um, I made a very Kaplanian argument about prayer. Right. Um, right. <laughs> that's, well, that's how I started. But uh, the argument I was making is sort of Kaplanian that way, you know, very shocking. Um, but, but ultimately, um, it, what, it, what I was trying to say is, if you don't believe in God in the traditional way, here's how, uh, here's how prayer can work for you if you're about to spend 25 hours in prayer. Right? Here's how prayer, and I think that what essentially I said, like, you know, you're, you're looking into a God mirror, right? And you're, you're saying, like, you know, what would God have you do? And what what is the godliness within yourself that you're appealing to at, at, at this moment? What's that? What would God do? Yeah, right, right. Um, all right, we, we've gone way over our time. Thank you for indulging me. Uh, and I'll try to find an opportunity to put uh, more sessions like this on the calendar.